Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kokoro Movement Podcast. On this episode, we have Dr. John Campioni, who is a chiropractor based out of Chicago, Illinois, a rock tape instructor, and the host of the Rock Tape Podcast. We had a really fun conversation, so we're just going to jump right into it. Without further ado, Dr. John Campioni. John Campioni, how are you, sir? Good, how are you? I'm doing good. So, yeah, we're, uh, man, we're finally getting some monsoon rains here in Flagstaff, Arizona. It's been really hot the last, like, three or four weeks, so nice to yep. get cooled off a little bit. <clears throat> That's so cool that you're in Flagstaff, because I, I, uh, I was born in Scottsdale, actually. I lived out in Phoenix, Mesa, um, for first few years of my life, and Flagstaff is where I first saw snow. Really? <laughs> yes. That's so amazing. Like I, Flagstaff is like close to my heart for that very fact right there. <laughs> right on. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, as I've gone into adulthood and dealt more with the snow, I'm yeah. not as much of a fan. So <laughs> <laughs> me and my wife um, moved into a house about a year and a half ago, and we finally got a really big winter for the first time in a couple of years and yeah there was a couple of snowstorms in where i'm like i don't even know where to put all this stuff where <laughs> like what do we do with this so just push push it aside or drive over it honestly <laughs> yeah driving over it but i remember there was one time when i looked out and there's like a foot and a half of snow and she's a, a cdicu nurse so she has to be at work at seven o'clock in the morning uh, so if it snows i have to get up at five thirty and start shoveling there was one day I was just over it, and I look outside, and there's a foot and a half, and I'm like, oh, oh, she wow. can make it out, whatever. <laughs> and then when she leaves, the snowplow came by, and now there's like a three-and-a-half-foot berm at the bottom of the driveway. Yeah. She's like, what do I do? And I said, just run it over. I don't know. I can't help you right now. You need to you, run it over. Honestly, as, as, as a Chicagoan who deals with it all the time, even the fact that we have a snowplow and shovels and we're we're expecting it and kind of waiting for it, right. sometimes it's like, screw it, it's too early in the morning, I don't want to deal with it, I'm just going to drive right over it. So all you do is you gas the hell out of it and you go. Right, right. So I went to a DNS course in uh, Portland uh, last year, I think, Portland. and and uh, it was the first snowstorm they'd had in like 10 years and nobody knew what to do about it and they had one snowplow for the whole city. And okay. it was just a nightmare driving in that stuff because it took, like, yeah. everybody drove on it and it was all hard packed and icy. <laughs> it was like an ice rink. And then yeah. in some of those intersections with the train, they just chipped it out yeah. instead of, like, plowing the whole thing. So, Jeez. This yeah, is Portland, was, Portland, Oregon, right? Correct. Yep. Okay, so wow. It, I, didn't, I would have thought they got more. Uh, I, guess, I guess not in the Northwest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then it. I was probably five miles away from the course, and it took me an hour to get there every day. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. 
that's kind of what it's like when it when it snows out in Chicago in the winter. That's what it's like. Is is but honestly, that's kind of like traffic out here too. It's like you're five yeah. miles. It's going to take you about twenty five minutes. <laughs> it's like right. So I took a I took a NKT uh, level three course out there in oh, May. Nice. Yeah. So um, yeah, there was. I got in and I wanted to go see the, the Sears Tower or, and, you know, I've never been there before and I was really amped on it and I fly in and I'm like, there's no way I can do this right now. Like, of just knowing the traffic in Chicago and then, cause if luckily, I remember, yeah, NKT has been without, kind of in the northwest suburbs, so you're like not in the city, right? Or they've been, where they've been holding their events lately? Correct, yep. So, uh, oh, we're, uh, where was I? I can't even remember. I, I believe uh, it's El- Elk Grove Village. Is where that's correct. Yep. Yeah. That was right. Yep. And so it, um, the final day we ended early and I just booked it into town and. That's what it is. It's always beat the traffic. Beat the traffic. Right. <laughs> yep. And then I had a problem with all the tow roads. Like there's some that, you know, like, because I'm not used to that stuff in Arizona. So just driving on tow roads is a nightmare. Like, you know, like, the, the exact change. Yeah, the exact mm-hmm. change, and then there was some that, then so I was prepared to have exact change, and then I didn't have coins, and, and then there was no attendance. Oh, my God. I was like, wow, how do people even live here? But Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, because they, they instituted open road tolling, so it's like those big platforms that you just drive under. Yeah. Everybody out here usually has uh, what we call an iPad, so. Right. It's this little thing that you sit on your dashboard, and it's plugged into your your one of your uh, accounts, and it just withdraws. Mu- you put like twenty bucks on it at a time, and then it just oh, takes okay. that twenty bucks. When you re- when you use the twenty bucks, usually it re- uh, replenishes by itself. But yeah, that's typically what it is. But I think I think this came from mostly people who aren't familiar with it. But if you run through those just to save time, or you aren't sure, you can actually pay your toll online uh, within yeah. uh, seven days. So I. I know a lot of people who are not from the area. They drive around. They're like, "Oh yeah." Once I learned that that was the case, I just went through it and I just paid it online. <laughs> that's that's what I ended up doing for two of them because I mm-hmm. was, I was like, "Yeah, I'm on top of it now." Got all this well. exact change. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it was good, but it was fun to be out there. Um, so I'm gonna steal a little thing. This is gonna be the first podcast where I actually do this. I'm gonna steal it from. Uh, the Never Quit podcast, which is called The Mad Minute. So I'm just going to ask you a bunch of random questions to kind of get this party started. Okay. All right. So the first one is, what's the first car you ever owned? Oh, jeez. The first car I ever owned was a, I'm forgetting the year, but it was probably something from the 80s. It was a Toyota uh, Camry station wagon from like the 80s, like silver, not silver, uh, navy blue, rust kind of over the place. And it came out of necessity. You know, I was right. 16. Uh, I was just doing a lot of extracurricular activities, and my mom was like, we just got to get you a car. So we found, like, the cheapest thing we could buy that had four wheels and a, and a steering wheel on the inside. So that was my that was the first car I ever had. That's awesome. <laughs> and that was down in Scottsdale, right? No, I was, I was uh, uh, out in Chicago by that time when I was in high school. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I was only in Scottsdale for until I was about 10. Oh, okay, perfect. That's probably better because it's getting pretty hot down there now. So, I mean, not here. <laughs> if, if we're up in Flagstaff complaining about the heat, I don't even want to know what's going on down there. Jeez, oh, my gosh. I don't know. All right, so what's your favorite sport? Baseball. 
Baseball. Cool. Uh, favorite movie? Spaceballs, with a Space. close close second being uh, uh, Princess Bride. <laughs> Those are two pretty good movies. But, uh, Spaceballs is, is the best. It really is. <laughs> What's the most ridiculous movie you've ever seen? Um, I think I got to stay on the Mel Brooks kick because my my dad when I had a young age got me into to Mel Brooks. That's why I love Spaceballs. But if you've ever seen Mel Brooks's History of the World Part One, yeah, it's hilarious and it's just kind. of – I don't get into like craziness with movies and stuff like that. So mostly the comedies, but History of the World Part One is is just utterly hilarious. So the most ridiculous movie ever. And I'm surprised that my wife still decided to be in a relationship with me after making her watch it. <laughs> is this movie called Kung Pao? It's the most. I, I think even, I know that. I don't think yeah. I saw it, but I know. I think I know about it. Oh my god! If you're uh, just yeah. like, I'm gonna be a little bit dumber today. Watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> those are the best, though. You just need those sometimes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so good. Uh, what's your favorite book? Oh geez, uh, I have a lot of favorite books, and unfortunately, I'm, I'm, it shows how much of a nerd I am. And a lot of them are, are nonfiction, but um, I, I don't think I have one specific book I can say is my favorite. But I can tell you a genre that I, I, I enjoy. If it's fiction, I really look for a series. So I look yeah. for a lot of spy series, and the, one of the best spy series of novels that I've read lately. And when I say read, for me, it's usually audiobook. Um, is the John Rain novels by Barry Eisler. Okay. Really cool. Uh, you know, he's a, he worked for the CIA, and then he became, like, a freelance assassin and stuff like that. It's just, just cool stuff. It lets me kind of get uh, into another world for a little while and just kind of fascinate, be fascinated by that. Right on. And then what about nonfiction? Oof, nonfiction. There's too many too many good books, really. Um I'd say what one right now that I've always got in my bag is the neural basis of motor control, which as an NKT guy, I know you're familiar with that by Vernon Brooks. Right. And then uh, one of the classes that I'm teaching, actually, the textbook is Neuroanatomy by Clinical Cases, and I'm, I'm loving that because of good mix of, obviously, the clinical cases, but also um, the uh, neuroanatomy neuro that it uh, introduces with those cases. So I think it's a great reference. Right on, perfect. It coincides with all your all the teaching that you're doing right now, uh, including with rock tape and everything. Absolutely, yeah, it helps out with a lot of stuff. Hopefully, I can to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Uh, what's your What's the favorite place you've ever traveled to? Um, oof, that's a tough one because I married a wonderful woman that loves to travel. So she got my uh, got my butt out of the United States. Uh, a couple of years ago, and I have I have to say if I have to choose because we've been to Italy and uh, Prague, I'd have to say Florence, Italy was my favorite. Uh, okay, it's, it's just an amazing t uh, place. There's so many things to see, and the best food I've ever had was was in Florence, Italy. Oh man, it's fantastic. That sounds amazing. Oh, it is. The best part about Florence too, and this is this is how wonderful my wife is. is she looks up and really plans our our, our travel and stuff like that, but. She found out that if, if you're a tourist, you really got to look for for the good restaurants are out of the way. You have to go find them. The stuff that's right. on main strips and stuff like that is for the tourists, and it's not the best. So you have to go find right. it. So we found some really great places. That's awesome. Cool. It was awesome. Yeah. So let's uh, get in your background a little bit. So um, sure. what made you decide to want to be a chiropractor? It's an interesting story. Is I uh, 
when I got into college, I had a hard transition from high school to college, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself. And, you know, I had always kind of had this dream as a child to get into engineering without kind of knowing what engineering was. So it was kind of always in my head. That was my first major was engineering. So I uh, I studied that my first year of uh, college, and I hated it. Uh, calculus sucked. I wasn't good at it. Um, rough first year. So I didn't really know what I was doing. I was kind of thinking about changing my major, and then my mom got plantar fasciitis. Okay. She went. She went to a physical therapist, and just because I think the physical therapist kind of it just was just a really nice guy, and my mom was kind of telling him my story. He's like, you know, bring him in. And, you know, I can tell him about the profession and, and and let him know. And I asked him questions and stuff like that, and it really started to interest me because I had always been somebody who loved exercise and loved to work out. Um, but uh, I started working at the physical therapy clinic as an aide. So I was working one-on-one with patients. I was teaching exercises. I was doing modalities and stuff like that. So I got in very quickly where I was like, I, I think I'm going to go to physical therapy school. So I went to college, uh, changed my major into exercise physiology because of just, you know, my love and my background for exercise. And it was a good, it's a good major for getting into, you know, uh, the postgraduate courses that I wanted to get into. And uh, this was at West Virginia University. I met... At a gym I worked at, I met one of the front desk staff, uh, went and see the chiropractor, and she's like, you know, this guy is, is really uh, very rehab-based. He's really good. You should come meet him. He's a really cool guy. And So I went to meet him, and I was talking to him. He actually went to National University, where I went to school, which is in my area in Lombard, Illinois. Um, it's, you know, 20 minutes from where I live, uh, depending on the traffic. Um, but uh, I, uh, I talked to him, and he's like, you know – you could go into uh, being a chiropractor and still kind of do what a physical therapist would do. And at the time, this was the big selling point for me. He said, you would actually have direct access to your patient. Because one, the, the, one of the biggest things with PT at the time was they didn't have direct access to their patients in, in pretty much any state. And, and I'm very happy to say that's actually changed in most states. But that was a big selling point, and I kind of liked the idea of having that status as uh, as a physician, as a doctor. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I didn't know what the profession was like at, at the time. I, I knew there was a bit of a stigma, but I didn't have a lot of uh, background or research, so I had to kind of read up on it a little bit. And you know, with help from this doc, he he assured me that you know you can practice the way you want to practice, and 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 still have you know, uh, great respect within the community, and uh, it's, you know, going to be a great transition from what you thought you were doing into what you're doing, and I I got into school um, into national, and I, you know, started to see kind of the first few trimesters uh, getting into it, and we were, you know, very medically based at my school, so we were learning basically how to be doctors, you know, despite having the label of, of chiropractors, so... I loved just the idea of studying the human body and pretty much knowing, you know, anything I could about the human body. You know, it was a tough ordeal, but that's really what kind of got me into the profession is, is trying to have kind of that physician status and a little bit more direct access to my patients. So I know things have changed a little bit now, but uh, that's kind of how the, how the, uh, the pathway got there. Awesome. And, uh, yeah, calculus is so bad. And then oh, God. So, cause I, I, I couldn't get I, it. I initially wanted to go uh, the physical therapy route mm-hmm. um, and just got so stuck on the mat just because my brain doesn't think that way. Like if you're 
like uh, the question I or the example I use the most is, you know, my teacher in physics class was saying, find the velocity of this hockey puck sliding without friction on the ground. <laughs> and I was like, why would I do that? Who cares? And where did the hockey puck come from? And how does it sliding <laughs> without friction? That's what I want to know. You yeah. know what I mean? Nobody's asking these questions. Are you kidding me? And so, you know, <laughs> just that was the hardest part for me. And I, um, you know, missed passing that class by like 1.2 points and then had stress-induced heart palpitations for like a week. And oh, my, my, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was like, you're not dying. And I'm like, I'm dying. I know. She's <laughs> like, you're not dying. And you then, know what? That that was kind of the first time I, I, I think I realized, maybe realized without even knowing it, but I, I think that was the first time in my life I realized there are some things that I just am not going to be good at, right. you know, and it starts you on the pathway of, okay, maybe I avoid those things and maybe focus on my strengths a little bit. So. Right. Well, so, you know, reading uh, Stuart McGill's book, The Low Back Disorders, like he's talking mm-hmm. about, you know, the how much um, – pressure is put on your each spinal vertebrae when you're deadlifting a rounded back compared to a flat back. Mm-hmm. And that's physics I can get behind because it makes sense to me, especially, yeah. you know, yeah. being a CrossFit coach, like that's a really easy way to explain to people how you get injured when you deadlift with incorrect mechanics. And, and, you know, so then, but then going back to like the hockey puck thing or like, or how, you know, the, the velocity of the cup, that's coming off of the counter after the cat pushed it off. I'm like, I don't care about that stuff. Like, you guys don't understand. Yeah, it's like all that, and then what's the, what's the color of the cat's fur? It's like, I don't care, you know? It I know. apply to me. So, it doesn't yeah, matter. That's, yeah. That's, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Is I needed something that was a little bit more applicable to real life, so I had to kind of get away from that. It just wasn't, it wasn't a good time for me either in my life. That transition was tough. You know, going into college is very tough for a lot of people. I just I just had no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, and I avoided the crap out of it forever. So I went to <laughs> mas- I went to massage school right out of high school because my dad has been a massage therapist. I'm like, well, he makes a lot of money, so I'll just do that same thing. Nice. And then, you know, being 18 years old, I had no idea how to run a business. I didn't even know what it was like to be an adult yet. So then, you know, went through a couple decades of stupid things, and and you know, after my little uh, heart palpitation episode, I realized that uh, a school up here in Flag um, took financial aid, so then I just jumped on that and got the the rest of the hours I needed to be licensed in Arizona. So that's like, and I couldn't be happier because now I can take whatever education I want and apply it however I want to whoever I want, and I run my own business, and, you know, which makes me virtually unemployable nowadays because, you know, if (laughs) I would – I would have to have a pretty spectacular boss to work for them. They would have to be very like-minded. And right now, mm-hmm. especially in Flagstaff, I can't find anybody that's I'm better the, than me at being my boss. So <laughs> I, I am the same way. As I, coming out of school, chiropractic school, I worked for a couple people, and uh, we really butt heads. Like I was, I was, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that I was fired from my first uh, job because. I was essentially hired to market the practice. I wasn't hired to be a chiropractor. Right. So I was basically brought in, you know, without being outright told. Like, it was in the contract. Like, hey, you'll have to do some, you know, marketing events and stuff like that. But my primary job, even to the point where it was discussed that I would be out of the clinic not seeing patients to go to, like, do marketing. I'm like, 
I'm not a marketer. I didn't go to school for that. I want to, to treat people. And, you know, that's kind of how it evolved into my practice. And, and my wife and I practiced together, opened up together. We ne- She never really wanted to work for anybody anyway, but she was a couple tries behind me at school. So we had to wait for her to finish before we could start working on our practice. So it was natural for me to kind of try to find a job in the meantime. And I was so unhappy with the two places that I worked. The second place, I just quit because of um, – not to disparage anybody, but I was a little scared of their billing practices, I'll say it that way, so I didn't want to get in any kind of trouble myself because, you know, my, right. my signature was on a couple notes. So I was just like, you know what, I'm going to I'm gonna quit that practice. I went back to personal training for the time being while we were getting our practice up, and it was the exact same reason. I just realized I didn't really want to work for anybody because I wanted to treat and run a business the way I wanted to do it. Right. And so that's a that's- – kind of brings us to an interesting point where Mm -hmm. there's like kind of a a standard chiropractic practice and yeah and that's kind of where what I grew up around because uh my dad started his career as a massage therapist at a chiropractic office so I would go Mm -hmm. and I was riding uh BMX at that point so I was crashing my brains out every day so I just go to the chiropractor at the end of the day and then get a ride home for my dad and and that's just kind of how it worked and then um, I had a pretty uh, substantial low back injury um, uh, in a CrossFit gym, but not because of CrossFit. And so okay. every, everybody that's listened to the podcast before has heard the story, but I'll just give a quick rundown. Um, there was a, um, a really phenomenal gymnast that was at the gym, and I was uh, video videotaping him walk down the stairs on his hands, and mm-hmm. I was walking down backwards which theoretically should be easier, but I thought <laughs> I thought I was on the last step, but I was on the fourth step and took a big step back and just mm-hmm. really ranked my back and then uh, took five days off, uh, was doing really heavy back squats and never really felt a pop or anything, but then was just like, hmm, I should probably dump this and then lie on the floor for two hours and be in pain. And so, but then that's when I went, to a chiropractor and was like, look, this really hurts. And then he mm-hmm. adjusted my neck and my thoracic spine and then kind of did my low back. And then I was like, okay, so I can't walk. What are you doing to my neck right now? I'm not, yeah. I don't have any, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yep. And, and then fast forward um, to, you know, three or four years when I was at uh, the DNS level one course, I saw um, this guy doing muscle testing during the lunch break. So I was watching him and watching him and trying to figure out what he was doing. And then the next day I asked him if he could work on me. And he was a chiropractor out of Boulder. And I don't know why he's not famous. He's one of the most the smartest people I've ever met. But he, he did like an hour's worth of muscle testing on me and corrections on me and then adjusted one vertebrae and was like, you're done. And I was like, okay, what was that? Like how yeah. did that happen? You know, yeah. so then – just kind of being disappointed in the the options that I have here in Flagstaff, which are just kind of all of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then patients kind of go from one to the other and then just kind of migrate around because they're not really getting what they need. And so through the education that I'm taking, I've been meeting a lot of these chiropractors and PTs who are really choosing to operate differently. And so I'd like to really hear about, what your practice is like and and what each kind of session is like for each patient. Absolutely. Um, that is 
just kind of a great uh, rundown. When my wife and I decided that we wanted to open a practice, um, we had that very same thought, is we know what the reputation of chiropractors is. We know that the majority of the profession likes to be um, – and I don't want to disparage my own profession, but, uh, you know, this is it's just fact, basically. But um, it is a lot of the, the profession is philosophy-based, and they use one tool. That tool is the, the manipulation, and sometimes even just the spinal manipulation. And we know that that wasn't necessarily all there was, because we both have had experiences with chiropractors that did more than that. My wife is a great example because she was a, a college athlete, and she worked with chiropractor that did a lot of the rehab-based stuff that, w- that we chose to do as well, too. So she had an understanding of what a chiropractor was like outside of kind of what the rest of the world sees it. We wanted to practice like that, and we were fortunate enough to have a lot of instructors and a lot of um, uh, colleagues that were a little bit more on the rehab side of things. They were a little bit more towards the progressive side of things. And when we wanted to open our practice, we said, this is what we want to do. We want to be more rehab-based. We want to do more than just adjust our patients. And the, the, the joke we always have around the house is we went to school for way too much money and way too long of a period of time to just adjust somebody. And it's not to say that the adjustment is not effective. What I'm saying is it's one tool. So the fact that we would only use one tool, that's not enough for us. So we wanted to open a practice that was going to be more rehab-based because we wanted to get people better. We always joke with ourselves, we are terrible business people because we want to be great doctors, because we want to get our patients better. And it's a terrible business philosophy, but if you get your patients better, to to us, it's great word of mouth. They're going to send people to you. Um, So we wanted to have that more progressive treatment style, and we also wanted to eliminate some of the other things that we saw in other practices. Uh, It's kind of ironic, too, because I started as a tech. I was the one as a tech uh, 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 helping patients learn exercises and doing modalities like ultrasound and stuff like that. But we didn't want that. We actually thought that that was uh, going to be uh, detrimental to kind of the model that we wanted. Um, so we wanted to be one-on-one with our patients. We wanted to be the ones that are doing the exam, doing all the treatments, doing all the exercise teaching, stuff like that as well, too. And that's kind of the practice that we've built. And, and it goes to the point to where, you know, we're low volume, but we accept that because we get to be one-on-one with our patients the entire time. They talk to us about their treatment. They don't have to talk to, you know, some 16-year-old that's coming in and doesn't necessarily know what they're doing. Um, we didn't really like the idea, and again, it's ironic because of how I started in healthcare, but we didn't like the idea of some a, a non-licensed professional kind of working with our patients. So when somebody comes into our office, you know, we go through our full exam, um, our exams are very movement-based, and, you know, for me, it's an amount – the way our exam is involved, is it, it's gotten a lot away from what you learn in school where it's very protocol-based and just kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different, you know, mini screens and tests. And it starts to become a little bit more fluid and a little bit more about, you know, where are we seeing the problem, finding the source of it, too. So <clears throat> we have – our exams being more about how someone is moving, kind of testing the output of the brain is what, is what I typically say. So I don't really – I subscribe to a lot of movement uh, assessment methods. I don't necessarily use one or the other. So 
studying things like functional movement screens, selective functional movement assessment. You know, NASM has their uh, stuff as well, too. You know, I'm a practitioner of applied movement neurology. I take everything, you know, 3D maps from Gary from Gray Institute. I kind of take everything and use it as I need with individuals, not necessarily sticking into one system. So we do very movement-based assessment. You know, get the orthopedics out of the way, get your, your neuro screens and stuff out of the way, um, and get into how people are moving. And we utilize the manipulation when, when we need it. It's, it's, again, it's one tool in our toolbox. And I'll, I'll proudly say that there are some patients that I don't manipulate because it's just not appropriate or, honestly, I found a more effective way to kind of treat that area, whether it be soft tissue or, or whatever. Um, but, again, you know, it's an effective tool that I use as needed. Um, a lot of our sessions after we get into, you know, examination, we find out what's going on is just a regular visit. It's getting someone in here, reassessing. That is the biggest key with our daily visits is making sure that we're always reassessing a patient. I, I, I tell my students all the time is, is every visit you're doing a little bit of an examination anyways. You're not just jumping sure. into treatment. So for you to kind of think, I get questions, questions all the time about like treatment plans and stuff like that or how long a certain case is. And I frustrate my students because my philosophy, my thought process is every day I'm reassessing the individual as if it's their first day again. Because to me, I treat them on day one. On day one, I have changed their physiology. And then the next time they come see me, I am reassessing what I've changed already to see how long it's held and where they are right now. So it's almost like rather than a series of treatments, it's, it's, it's you know, several different treatment plans per visit to make sure that I'm working with an individual as closely as possible and making sure that they're, they're, uh, they're doing what they need to do, what I need to see them doing. So after we get into that, we use quite a few soft tissue techniques because of the neurology of soft tissue being so important and the stimulation of different receptors, whether it's relaxing tissue, increasing tactile acuity into the brain. We're using a number of different techniques just to really stimulate whatever we need to stimulate uh, as far as the receptors are concerned. And that really just comes from the assessment. So if I have someone who has more of a tissue extensibility uh, issue as having a, a lack of range of motion, maybe that's a, a pain generator, uh, the hips are immobile and it's causing, you know, low back pain. I need to, you know, do my soft tissue in the, in the right area to try to relax that tissue, gain more range of motion, but then also understand that there's two sides to every joint. So where I need to relax the, the uh, issue where the tissue is not ex, uh, as extendable, I might need to increase tactile acuity to certain patterns or certain tissue just to make sure that that individual can own their range of motion as well, too. Um, I've started to get a lot more into cerebellar testing and understanding just how much the cerebellum is controlling movement uh, and the output that comes from the frontal cortex. So I do quite a bit of cerebellar screening just to kind of get to a certain side of dysfunction. And what's fun with that is a lot of people come in with, like, right shoulder pain, but it ends up being that they have uh, decreased uh, output, really input, because it's mostly input to cerebellum, decreased input into the cerebellum on their left side. So perhaps Romberg's test, they're leaning to the left, uh, rapid coordinated movement patterns, they're getting some slippering going on the left. And you start talking to an individual and treating them on the left side, and they start going, yeah, but it's my right side that hurts. So then I get to throw out all the anecdotes and, and things that we use in our rock tape courses. Is where you think it is, it ain't. You know, yep. pain is just a signal. Pain is your tech engine light. You don't just right. cover up the tech engine light. And 
you know, we'll get into that a little bit later, but that's kind of how I evolved from, you know, making sure that the patient understands that I'm the practitioner, not them. But once I get a couple, you know, maybe one, maybe two, hopefully treatments out of the way with, with soft tissue, maybe an exercise or two, just to reinforce what I've been doing, then I start to kind of increase the uh, number of exercises. And honestly, when I say increase, it's really one, maybe two things that I'm having someone work on, and I want them to work on it every day. Our, our, our treatment really evolved to seeing patients about once a week because, as uh, my good friend Joe Lavaca would say, is you're not going to change from Monday to Wednesday as much as you would from Monday to the next Monday. So, you know, based on cell physiology, based on just, you know, how the the brain works with neuroplasticity, what am I going to do two days later with an individual that they can't just do on on, on their own at home by reinforcing all their exercises? Right. So we evolved to kind of getting a little bit more into uh, the the treatment style of, okay, we're going to work on you. I'm going to make sure you walk out of here feeling better. This is your homework. You absolutely have to do it every single day. If you come back and you're not improved, that tells me that you're not doing your homework, and we need to address that because then we get into, like, the biopsychosocial model is, hey, why don't you want to get better? You know, that kind of thing with patients, too, which then gets into a whole longer conversation after that. So, Right. So I've been uh, – I took functional range conditioning from uh, Dr. Andrea Spina oh, yeah, back in – Oh, so good. Back in April. Um, but just the, the way that that guy explains mm-hmm. his homework is so perfect. He's like, when people are like, how often should I do it? Yeah. He's like, well, you should quit your job and do it all day long. And Seriously. Like, okay. Yeah. And so, but then, you know, when he says that, then they'll probably do it 10 times, which is what he wants. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so, but then it's like one of those things where, um, you know, so, I am kind of similar, like if somebody comes into me and they're injured and I do my initial assessment and kind of figure out what's going on, then I want to see them at least once a week. And then after that, when they're feeling great, then maintenance after that. So that's like the hard part is trying to get people to stay ahead of the next injury. Sure. And instead of, you know, because I have a lot of clients that come in and they call me, oh, I can't move my head. I'm like, cool, call me three weeks ago. You know what I mean? I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. it's just, it's, uh, so it's, we just live in this day and age where it's, it's really hard for people to kind of take care of themselves because we're so distracted and we have to spend so much of our time, you know, yeah. making money to survive. So it's, it's, our profession is, is really interesting. You know, that, that kind of leads into, you know, back to, to our treatment philosophy is, you know, a lot of people joke, you know, what's the thing about chiropractors is, well, you know, uh, you're going to see me three times uh, a week for the rest of your life, you know, that that whole, like, maintenance. Um, we never really wanted to do that. I, I really wanted to treat someone, get them better, and then they call me when they need me. And, and really where that comes from is just the fact that I have to be an educator as much as I am just a, a, a healer, I guess you could say. Doctor, the original uh, definition of the word doctor was teacher. I need to teach my right. patients how to live their lives to not prevent pain, because sometimes it's hard to do that. Preventing injuries is very difficult, and some would argue that, that it's impossible, but manage the, their, the condition that they came to, uh, uh, in to see me with and make sure that they have the tools they need 
And if those tools stop working, then they give me a call. I love the fact that I have uh, uh, an average uh, uh, treatment uh, number, I should say, uh, visit, visit uh, count. I don't even know what I'm saying. Um, my average number of visits per, per case is about four to six visits. I don't, right. I don't have month-long treatment plans. In fact, when I have patients come to me and they say, oh, yeah, I went to physical therapy or went to this chiropractor uh, and it didn't seem to help. Well, how long were you seeing them? About three months. To me, yeah. I'm like, wow, you know, I'll never, I'll never diss anybody in front of the patient. That's just rude. I wouldn't do that. But, but I think to myself, like, what are they doing that requires three months? And then, you know, right. and you hear it from the patient, so you don't know if you get the whole story. But the, the patient will be like, yeah, you know, they did a, a few stretches and, like, did that change day to day? No, they kind of did the same thing every day. And it's like, well, that's a, that's a lack of appreciation for someone, for your neurology. You have to understand that you have to constantly be challenging the system and making sure that you are providing what's necessary for the case. And it goes back to what I was saying about day-to-day, I'm reassessing as if it's a new case each time because after every treatment, I've changed their physiology, hopefully for the better. So I have to reassess. But then I have to understand in between the time that they haven't seen me, they're either doing their exercises or, or whatever I've given them or they're not, and that also changes their physiology too. So I want to make sure that I'm getting them out of there as quick as possible, which, by the way, is a fantastic marketing tool (laughs) for people to be like, oh, yeah, you don't have to see them for the rest of your life. But also just for my peace of mind, making sure that I'm helping the patient and giving them the tools to leave. It's it's almost like having, you know, I have have two small children now, and it's like when they leave home, um, you know, if if my wife has anything to say about it, they never will leave home. But (laughs) when they eventually (laughs) – when they eventually leave home, I want them to have all the tools they need to survive. And I kind of see a patient like that is when they leave right. my care, when I discharge them, they need to have the tools to manage them, their health and manage the condition that they came to see me for. I tell my patients all the time is you're good to go. You keep doing what you're doing. Call me when you need me. Hopefully it's for something completely different. Right. And so I'm going to touch on a few points. Um, so rewinding back to how the right shoulder pain could be the left shoulder pain or the left shoulder dysfunction causing the right shoulder to be painful, that's like where neurokinetic therapy was a huge game changer for me because yeah. that is a way that you could effectively communicate with their body to figure out exactly where the dysfunction is mm-hmm. and effectively show them where the dysfunction is and why that is that way. And so then it then it realizes that their that helps them realize that their dysfunction is not in the low back, for instance. It could be in the foot or the hip or the shoulder or wherever. And so and like you said, um, you know, each time they come in, I'm treating them for something different because you know, fortunately for me, I'm a, also a CrossFit coach, and a, a majority of my clients are from the CrossFit gym. And we all, you know, know about CrossFit where you just get after it, shit gets crazy, and then you're just like, wow, my shoulder hurts. I'm like, cool, well, it's probably not that, but let's check it out. And so, you know, but then people, uh, we have a lot of runners here. And so running is an interesting thing. And I've talked with with this about a couple of people. So, like, where people just think that they can just buy a pair of running shoes and then just start running. Yeah. And then after a while, they get injured, and they're like, why am I injured? I'm like, because you're a terrible runner. But I can <laughs> run <laughs> but I can run nine miles. I'm like, exactly. So you yeah. ran nine miles badly. So you got to 
learn how to run. It's a skill. And so, you know, but if you run on a, on the roads for two weeks and then you come to me and you're like, this hurts, then I fix it. And then you go and run on the trails. That's probably a completely different dysfunction because it's a completely different stimulus. Oh, yes. Perfect. I mean, that's a perfect way to describe it. It's a different stimulus. You know, if you have someone who's running the roads versus running the trail or they were, uh, I I see this a lot, is someone who just isn't as active. They go, oh, I heard running is good for you. So they just start running as if it's just as if that's as easy as that is you just start running. So, yeah, it's, it's a change in the stimulus and the stimulus is something that your body wasn't necessarily prepared for. So your body reacts. Uh, to it. As, as human beings, our system is great for compensating because our brain, their only job is to accomplish the task. Well, I should say the primary job of the brain is survival. So right. to the second, secondary is accomplishing a task. But if that task provides some kind of stimulus that might be dangerous, your brain is going to provide an output like pain to say, hey, stop doing that. So you go and start running and you've never run before and maybe you go a little bit too hard or you go too long, your brain is going to take that input and go, yeah, I don't want to do that again because all it needs to do is survive. So it's like you have pain now. Don't do that anymore. Right. Um, And I just got done reading uh, Sue Sue Falzon's new book. Yeah. uh, Yeah, Bridging the Gap. That movie or that book is amazing. But she, she talks about how, like, the when the prime movers start to fail, then the synergists start to take over as the prime movers. And that's yeah. a really good way to kind of uh, describe the neurokinetic therapy's idea of facilitated and inhibited. Because Absolutely. the facilitated was once the prime mover, and now that it is no longer the prime mover, it becomes a synergist. And then the inhibited is the new prime mover. And usually it's a smaller group working for a bigger group which is why, um, you know, I tell, like, so uh, one relationship that I find a lot is um, the quads to the popliteus. And oh, yeah. when people are like, why does that popliteus hurt so bad? I was like, well, it's the only person in the group doing the group project. And so <laughs> then, and so that's another thing I wanted to kind of talk with you about is, sure. you know, because I've been taking a lot of the um, uh I just I took rock blades like right when it first came out. So the rock blades came out, okay. and then I hit refresh on the courses until I found one that was close to me, and the closest one was Tucson, <laughs> and went and uh, took that course. And then you guys just blew my mind to pieces with that course. So that was back in 2015, okay. and like you just saying, you know, just coming from the massage therapy background, you're not working with muscles, you're working <clears> with the <throat> nervous system. And I was like, what? Does yeah. that mean? And so yeah. I remember driving back to Flagstaff from Tucson. It was like a four-hour drive and just concentrating so hard on what that is. And then that's what brought me to um, David Butler and, mm-hmm. and you know, Laura Mosley and Michael Shacklock and all those people. Because then I'm like, well, obviously I need to learn more about the nervous system. So, um, But then I took um, Rockblade's Advance in um february with joe and that was an even better course and um but then i uh hosted rock blades and rock blades advanced uh last month here at our gym with uh um stuart wilson teaching it and so yeah so just uh 
you know, just getting, like, being able to kind of be present for those courses a second time was uh-huh. really helpful for me to kind of, you know, get more of that information in my head and, and, you know, I just kind of wanted to run down that path a little bit. So, um, yeah. Speaking of like, um, the Toplidius, I'm kind of thinking that if we upregulate the quads first, because those are like, that's what I typically find to be, um, inhibited, usually from, you know, something ridiculous like doing 150 squats in a workout. <laughs> then, you know, the only way that I've found to release that poplidius is, you know, by trigger pointing it, which is obviously putting them into the uh, sympathetic state and putting them into fight or flight, which is sure. not necessarily effective based on the education that you guys are giving. Sure. So, yeah. like, what um, what kind of treatment would you do for that? Um, and, let's yeah, let's just kind of dive yeah. into that for a little bit. So, you know, this is, you know, what I stress when I teach and to all my students is if you don't know what you're supposed to do, it doesn't matter what tool you're using because you're using it incorrectly. So when we talk about what we do with the rock blades, and one of the best things about the rock blades is the fact that it is very specific and it's how you use the tool. It's not the tool. It's how you use the tool. Our tools are awesome, by the way, but I'm biased, but it's how you use the tool. The tape is how you use the tape. But if I use the, my blade to, and I use fast oscillating movements with, with a fairly light pressure to upregulate the system and stimulate the pacinian corpuscles, but that's not what that tissue needed, I'm, I'm not using the right tool. So assessment is key. We have to understand that if we don't know what we're supposed to be treating and how we're supposed to be treating it, then we're in trouble. So you're basically guessing at that point. So, you know, to that extent, we, I have to stress the fact that it really does depend on the assessment and what we're doing to figure out what exactly is, is going on. So once we get to that point and we see that there's a compensatory uh, uh function going on, it's really deciding kind of what the nervous system really needs. So, you know, if we have an issue with either, uh, you know, decreased tactile acuity, and for instance, um, I love I love muscle testing. In fact, when I took neurokinetic therapy, that really taught me uh, how to really muscle test correctly. So, um, I, I attribute m- my muscle testing skills absolutely to MKT. But if I find that there's, this is where I'm going to get off on another tangent, if I find that there is, uh, you know, we call it inhibition, let's say. Right. I'm going to go off. On, I'm going to go off on the tangent. This is this is Get my it. thought process and my thing about muscle testing. Muscle testings are poorly named. It's not right. a muscle test because it right. it can never be one muscle. So Correct. when you look at the when you look at the book and you put the arm in extension and you put it in medial rotation and you try to pull into a lateral motion and it says you're testing the latissimus dorsi. No, you're not. You're, you, the latissimus dorsi is involved, but so is the teres major. They do the exact same motion. So are other muscles that adduct the arm, like the like the pec. So are other extensor groups or other medial rotators. So you have to understand that with muscle testing, this is how I describe it. It is a joint position test. You are pre-positioning the joint, and then you're asking the nervous system, can you hold this position? And then as a practitioner, you have to decide, okay, what is it really working? So that's where I jumped into, okay, what muscles are involved during this? I can maybe get a little bit more specific 
maybe reduce the number of planes that I'm working in with the resistance that I apply. And maybe, maybe it's the medial rotation, maybe it's the extension, maybe it's the adduction, maybe. But maybe I can get into looking at, okay, let's look at the lat. It's a fairly large muscle. It is the transitional point, one of the transitional points from the lower extremity up into the upper extremity. Maybe if I can get a little bit more information from that lat up into the brain, I can get a, a better lock on. So, you know, what a muscle test is telling me is that there is a decreased signal output from the brain into that particular pattern. And I want to say it, stress it as a pattern rather than just that one muscle. So if I take my tool and I do my fast oscillatory upregulatory, as we call it, stroke on the lat, what I'm doing is I'm cleaning up the body map of that particular muscle involved with this joint position test that I'm doing. And because it's a fairly large one, we know that it's going to be involved quite a bit in that action. So what I'm basically kind of doing is showing the brain where that part is. So when I look for tactile acuity or the need for upregulation, I'm kind of understanding that areas of pain are often where your body map representation on your cortex is dampened or as uh, Mosler and Butley would call in inexplained pain, is smudged. Your body is represented as a map on your cortex on the opposite side to whatever part of your, uh, whatever side of the body it's on. So if your brain can't see that part of the body, it fills it in with an output that we call pain. So if I give it the information to clean up that map, to draw in that smudged area, now I don't have to send out pain. So a lot of times when you see acute pain in a certain joint position, kind of getting into that muscle test, a lot of times you need to upregulate that and show the brain like, hey, here's this part. Here's this part right there. Um, you can even do that when pain is not involved. Maybe you just can't hold that position. That just says that outside of pain, the brain can't send that neural signal out to all of the musculature that is holding that position against your resistance. Because anybody who knows how to muscle test correctly knows uh, that the patient initiates the action. So if I can beat them, they're not pushing hard enough. It should be a nice hard lock. So yeah. when I have issues with muscle testing, I am often upregulating and trying to basically get input back into the brain from that tissue. And when I say Pacinian corpuscles, for those of you who may have not taken a blades course that are listening, I'm stimulating fascial receptors. So we know how fascia is connecting everything throughout the body. It transmits force uh, mechanically, but it's so neurologically rich and we have all these different receptors in different layers. And this Pacinian corpuscle is in a very superficial uh, layer, and we can uh, stimulate it very nicely. But when we do stimulate it, it really sends better input into the brain so that the brain can kind of see that area a little bit better. Now, then you get into range of motion issues. Range of motion issues uh, sometimes are defined, for instance, selective functional movement assessment would define it as, as kind of a tissue extensibility disorder. Um, so basically uh, what, what some people might refer to as tightness, but I don't, I don't want to get into that a little bit because that's not necessarily the most accurate. A lot of times we just need to kind of relax the tissue. So a lot of times when you see a lack of range of motion, it's because whatever the tissue that's lengthening is going through that range of motion, it's just not allowing it to occur. And oftentimes when we see a lack of range of motion, that's what we need to look for. We need to look for the lengthening tissue. Is it allowing the motion to occur? 
because a lot of people with an older uh, philosophy might think, oh, you can't go through that range of motion. That means you need to get stronger within that range of motion, essentially looking at the concentric tissue, the tissue that's shortening and kind of powering through. But if you have the other side holding on so tight that it doesn't allow it to occur, then you're having problems. I don't care how strong that muscle is uh, on the other side. If you don't have the, the allowance of motion through the lengthening aspect of a, of a pattern, you're not going to get through that range of motion. So if I want to relax that tissue and allow it to lengthen appropriately, then I'm going to stimulate other receptors and look at what we call down-regulating the tissue. It's stimulating a deeper receptor called the raffinian, raffinian, uh, raffinian corpuscle, excuse me, uh, raffinian ending, excuse me. Uh, and what that does when you stimulate those, and that responds to deep, sustained pressure, that relaxes that tissue. And this is where we get into the debate about releasing tissue and adhesion. That's not what we're doing. And Robert Schleif debunked that a while ago. He said that you can't uh, change the morphology of the, the fascia. You can't deform the fascia because you need 2,000 pounds per square inch. I'm not that strong. If I was, I'd, be, I'd probably be hurting people or I'd be playing professional sports. Right. But <clears throat> what I'm doing with that slow, sustained pressure, which includes holding pressure on a certain area that is still slow and sustained. It's just you're not moving. You're static. It's right. stimulating these raffiti endings with this depth of pressure. And what it's doing is it's causing this autonomic feedback loop through hypothalamic tuning, and it's causing this relaxation in the fascial tissue. And the reason for that is because the fascia is innervated by smooth muscle-like uh, fibers that are only sympathetically innervated. So when you're a tight and achy all over the place, you're probably stressed out at the same time in some way, shape, or form. Whether you're ticked off or just, you know, you've been working hard, it's stress. So your right. sympathetics are upregulated. So if I stimulate with that slow, sustained pressure or I hold that pressure to a patient's tolerance too, that's relaxing the tissue by stimulating the, 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 sorry, the parasympathetic nervous system, and that's why I get that relaxation. So again, it goes back to it really depends on the assessment, and it really depends on where I need to be the most effective. Because you're going to find in every different case that there's going to be tissue that needs to be down-regulated, there's going to be tissue that needs to be up-regulated. I might have to modulate pain as well, too, because that's definitely going to be involved in lack of range of motion. And to me, that's number one, is if a patient's in pain, get them out of pain first. But a lot of times you see range of motion returning even before pain has uh, completely gone away. So that's a tough thing to work with because we're all conditioned especially as patients, that get rid of pain, and that's what makes us better. But us as practitioners, we want to make sure we educate our patients and understand you could be more functional, but you still have a little bit of lingering pain. We'll get there as we go along. But what I see most of the time is in every given case, I'm going to have some tissues that I need to downregulate, get increased range of motion, let that tissue lengthen appropriately as you move through a certain pattern. Other tissues, I need to kind of upregulate because the brain just doesn't have a good representation of that area. When you have pain in an area, oftentimes you have a dampening or a smudging of that body mass. So what you're seeing basically is that if I have a painful left shoulder on my right cortex where my shoulder is represented, I don't have good uh, representation. So my brain is just filling that in with pain. That's why my shoulder hurts. So I could modulate pain and actually get better mapping going on there, or I could go after just increasing the tactile acuity to that area, and that will also decrease pain at the same time. I could also have 
issues with range of motion because that tissue is just not lengthening appropriately, and that might generate pain as well, too. So I could downregulate the tissue, and everybody loves downregulation because it's, it's, it's deep massage, basically. Um, so it's, that would also reduce pain as I'm getting better range of motion and lengthening out of the tissue as well, too. So it really, you know, it's such a, a roundabout way to, to answer your question, but it is uh, really very case-dependent, and, and it really does depend on your assessment and what you find. But those are some of the ways to really kind of get in there and attack it. And, you know, I think we get caught up. I was just having this discussion with um, with uh, my friend Adam Wolf. is, uh, you know, you can call whatever you want. It's like, call it a trigger point. That's fine. Who cares? It's just semantics at that point. What we need to understand is what it actually is, regardless of its name, and what we're doing when we're actually trying to work on it. So, like, I don't care if people want to argue, oh, trigger points don't exist. Are you arguing about the words or are you arguing about what someone's actually, like, working on? Because what's there is there. I don't care what you call it. Call it Steve, whatever you want. I don't give a crap. So, a lot of those those terms are – make patients feel better about stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if you say, oh, there's a trigger point right here, that the patient or the client can understand what that means. Whether, their right, because if I if I launch into this big tirade about like kind of like you just did, then they're just gonna be like, "Well, I don't know what you're saying." So you yeah, know, oh, totally, yeah. And, right. and, I, and as, as I say that on tirades, you know, I, I wonder how many people have clicked off by now. So, um, so but you, <laughs> so that's like when I interviewed Adam Wolf, he did the same thing that he did with you, except like you were able <laughs> to kind of control the conversation a little bit better, and I was just like. Hold on. What did he just say? And then I would yeah. listen. I would think about that for a second, and then I'd be like, "Wait, what's he saying right now?" And then I'd yeah. like listen to that. And so, yeah, but and yeah, you had a more. Yeah, you had a more fitness. Anybody listening right now, we're not just dropping names for the sake of dropping names. Any name that we're talking about, you need to go find these people and follow them because these are the people that that are smarter than I am, and that's why I talk with them and and just and discuss this kind of stuff with them. It's because they they teach me a ton of stuff. Right, and so it's like this, and that's the power of social media is I can be like, wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. I have questions. Yeah. And so I want to ask him the questions that I want because there's a high likelihood that other people have the same questions. And so, Absolutely. And, and, you know, so then it's just comes down to asking, hey, do you have time, yes or no? And, and a lot of people say yes, and some say no, and that's fine. And it's just kind of the way that it works, but that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast and, and – one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because I heard you guys talking about the muscle testing and wanted to get your opinion on it. And so, you know, because, um, like, um, Adam goes pretty deep uh, talking about there's no such thing as a muscle. And like I said, that's, like, one of the things that, that the client needs to understand. So we can understand yeah. that. But yeah. the client likes to hear that there's muscles. He doesn't, yeah. They don't need yeah. to know that your brain doesn't think in individual muscle groups, it thinks in movement. And they yes. they don't need to know all that stuff. But, like, if you say, yeah. but, like, the reason why I love it so much and, and NKT really has that dialed in Absolutely. is they, they, they go through all these different protocols and the body tells you exactly what it needs. And then yeah. kind of going back um, a little bit, there's, um, it reminded me of one, client that I had, which brings us back to another thing that you guys talk about a lot in the rock tape courses, the biopsychosocial model. Yeah. And so that's also, I think, a, 
an important part of the assessment is just talking to people. So, you know, because oh, yeah. there's, because I've had a client come in, I have so much hip pain, you know, and then I start taking her through uh, massage uh, techniques and then take her through DNS rehab stuff and then start upgrading it to more uh, strength and conditioning type movements and then she feels great and then comes back to me and her hip pain's back and it's even worse. And I'm just like, God, what's going on? So I started asking her, what are you eating? Is there inflammation in your food? Is there this or that, this or that? And she's like, oh, man, I went over to my mom's house and I talked to her the other day. She made me so mad. And then my hip just hurt. And I'm like, okay. So, yeah. So you just have stuff going on with your mom. It doesn't have anything to do with your hip. And that's just, you know, that goes back to, you know, Dr. John Sarno talking about the, the tension myositis syndrome, which is where your body manifests pain yeah. because – Pain is easier to deal with than those subconscious emotions, which I think is really important for people to understand, too. So, well, yeah. yeah. What people need to understand is that our conscious self is a very small portion of our brain function. There is so much subconscious aspect to it. I'm I'm reading a great book right now called You Are the Placebo. um, Yeah, that book's amazing. uh, Joe Dispenza. And and it's fascinating to think about, you know, it, 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 at first it really sounds very uh, kooky. It's like, oh, you're right. going to think your way into health. It's like, yes, you are, because right. your emotions, um, and there's a gr- another great book by, by Bud Craig called, uh, um, I believe it's uh, How Are You Feeling or How Do You Feel? I forget the exact title, but your emotions play such an important role in everything, and I'll tell you that because everybody has seen someone picked off and how their arms flail and they grit their teeth and they have these facial expressions because this is all output. Your right. brain is sending output, and output has such a great role with your emotional state. The basal ganglia feeds through parts of the limbic system, and your basal ganglia helps with control and smoothness of movement. You have uh, the hypothalamus, which plays an important role in uh, olfaction, uh, moving through, and uh, you have output that is a response to certain odors. You have the cerebellum, which receives information from the cerebral cortex to coordinate different movement patterns, but it all is working with that uh, emotional component. So when you have someone who is frightened or uh, scared or just not you know, feeling good about themselves, you see it in their posture. You can see how they're slouched forward, and everything associated with movement is part of that. So cerebellar dysfunction, you will find in individuals who may suffer from depression, or they've let's, – let's be very simple with this. Let's not get into too complicated um, with disorders and stuff like that, but let's say someone just had a really bad day. Is I could do a, a cerebellar screen on someone and probably see some dysfunction going on, or I could see that they're going to have – you know, maybe uh, because the, the saccades that help with uh, flicking your eyes back and forth as if you're reading a, a page, that sits in the frontal cortex where you receive a lot of output as well, too. I could probably see some dysfunction in saccades because it's all output from the brain. So what we need to do as practitioners is with this biopsychosocial model, we assess output, we treat via input. I put my hands on people, I use my tool, I use the tape, that's input. I'm feeding input into the system to get better output, but I assess them by looking at their output. So if they're stressed out, that's telling me that they're having a great deal of input, and it might not even be something that they experienced that day. It might just be 
that they were driving past a car wreck on the side of the road. They're not even involved in it. Nobody stopped. It's just off to the shoulder. But they were in a car accident five years ago, and it just right. subconsciously came up. And all of a sudden, they just started being unhappy. And maybe they hurt. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're just having a bad day. So they're not necessarily feeling very comfortable, and they sit all day. And their boss comes in, and they say, you missed a deadline for whatever. Um, and they just starts to bring on stress. And you will ask people, be like, well, you know, did that bother you when your boss said that? They'll be like, oh, no, it didn't really bother me. But subconsciously, it did. And you see that manifesting in movement so, so much. So we analyze someone's movement, we have to take into consideration the biopsychosocial model. We're so great as practitioners, manual practitioners in the bio side, the psycho and social side, not so much. I'll, I'll say for myself at least. Right. So we have to understand that these individuals, sometimes they do need just a discussion. And right. a lot of times your progression might be a regression because they're working so hard, they're so stressed out, maybe giving them a ton of neurostimulatory exercises or, or, or I should say manual work is maybe that's too much for them right now. Maybe you just be like, you know what? I'm going to do some soft tissue work where we need to, and then I'm going to turn off the lights, and you're going to just lie in my room with no lights on, with your eyes closed, and just focus on your breathing. You know? Right. That's, that's your just, exercise. Yeah. Maybe they need to post, punch some focus myths, or maybe they just need to oh, yeah. have a conversation with somebody who gives a shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's like, mm-hmm. it's just kind of, it's, you shouldn't just be like, well, I'm only this, because these people come to you for a reason. Yeah. And they just want to feel better when they come to you. And sometimes that's just, you know, they Simple. come in and they just want to cry in front of somebody that's not going to judge them or, or you know, yeah. be critical of their vulnerability. And I yeah. think that that's a, that's a really important thing for uh, practitioners to hear also. Yeah, and I, I, I'll, I'm going to compliment my wife again just the earned brownie points. She is so good. <laughs> She has uh, this mama bear mentality. She all of all her loved ones. She just she wants to protect them, you know, from friends right. to her children to me. So even with her patients, she was the, she's the same way. She just she like she wants to help these people. So when they have a bad day, like she'll just spend the time with them. And I, I look at that. And when I finally learned about the biopsychosocial model, I told her, I'm like, you're already doing that stuff with patients. Did you realize that? And she's like, I'm just, you know, they just kind of needed to. to to talk it out, you know? Right. So just it, care about it, sometimes people. Sometimes <laughs> it's just that. It, sometimes it's just caring about people. And we use the word health care, but right. a lot of times I think we overlook care. Um, right. Because care can be a number of different things. So, you know, it's a hard thing. I never wanted to get into a psychology side of things, but right. it's something you have to go into. Well, and, and it's, it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's really important. So, uh, you know, that guy that I told you about that uh, was a practitioner out of Boulder, you know, he did um, – I, I actually got to watch him work, and for his first hour, he just interviews people, and then, like, it's essentially a psychology session. And then he starts to work on people from that. And then, you know, that just blew my mind. That guy's so crazy. I need to call that guy. <laughs> but, yeah. Say that again? Who was it? You cut off for a second. I didn't catch the So name. his name is Mitch Correct. Okay. And he's, yeah, he's out of um, Boulder, Colorado. And, God, that guy is a freaking genius. I don't understand. He's like, he's like, uh, like Perry Nicholson type where you're just like, do you just <laughs> freaking know everything? Like, what are you doing? You know what yeah. I mean? 
Well, but, uh, knowing Terry too is, is I could probably say for this guy is he just reads everything probably too. And, you know, that's another name that everybody should go look up if you don't already know it, but everybody knows Terry anyways. But, you know, right. these are the, these are the people that they just, they seek out the knowledge. So, you know, right. young practitioners, students, like don't get frustrated because you see someone doing what you want to do and you're not there yet. Those people got there some way and it, it was a grind. They had to get there with hard work. And a lot of times that's what it takes. And so my, I was talking with my friend uh, Ben Ramos of Floor Force Rehab in yeah. San Diego, and, uh, you know, he was saying, man, I just look at some of these people, and they're just so high up the cliff, and I just don't know how to get there. And I'm like, well, mm-hmm. they've been climbing longer than we have, but That's now we have, we have this advantage, right? So, like, instead of me going to college and learning applied kinesiology and trying to figure out how to – I just go take an NKT course. And now I get 40 years of of him, you know, building that uh, modality up, and I just take uh, that course over a couple of weekends. All the research that Steve and Steve Capobianco and all you guys are doing, I just get to go take a weekend course and learn so much. And then not only that, but at the end of, like, the Rockblades Advanced course, you're like, hey, read all these books, and then let's follow these people because this is where we learn that. And then so we are in the age of information. All you got to do is look it up and figure out which courses you want to take and start, and it just takes you down rabbit holes. And then you have all these people that are just shooting you up that cliff, so you're taking steps by leaps and bounds and and instead of, you know, over decades, you get to do it over a weekend and and then just figure out how to apply it. So yeah. then by the time that you're that far up the cliff, everybody else is like, holy shit, you remember that guy? You know what I mean? So Yeah. And, just, you know, what I invite everybody to do with our weekend courses at Rock Tape or any weekend courses is, you know, take it for what it's worth, learn from it, but use that to stimulate your desire to learn more because there is right. always more. Right. And you guys always provide different avenues and 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 places to go and resources, and it's really – I find that very helpful. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to take up too much of your time. We've just been getting after it. I have so many more questions for you, but maybe we can do a part two sometime in the future. We can um, definitely do a part two, but, yeah, I, I should be getting out of here because my wife has two very rambunctious children she's watching right now. So. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so where can people get a hold of you, and how can they figure out which uh, courses to take so they can learn from you? Well, I can uh, tell you uh, I'm teaching for Rock Tape in the next as, – as we speak, it is July 9th, and uh, I am going to be teaching uh, this weekend in, just outside Indianapolis, Indianapolis for tape. Next weekend, the 21st, 22nd, I'm going to be outside of Omaha, Nebraska, teaching Blades. And then the last weekend of July, I'm going to be in Syracuse, New York, teaching uh, tape. And then I'll be in August just outside Des Moines. And I want to say that is a uh, – I forget what that is, actually. That is a Blades course, actually. So kind of going back and forth between tape and Blades. But the best way to get a hold of me is uh, on social media. I am at uh, Dr. John Campioni. It's at D-R-J-O-H-N-C-A-M-P-I-O-N-E. So uh, if you want to learn how to spell my name, it's literally just Camp i one so uh, at, at Dr. John Campioni on Twitter and Instagram, but I am old, an old man, so I don't really know how to use Twitter, so I don't a lot. So I'm always on Instagram, though. I kind of figured that out. So if you guys want to 
slide into my DMs and ask questions. I am more than open. It's learning from each other. So please, yeah, let me know if you have any uh, questions about any of the courses and stuff like that. I'm very bad with the logistics of the course. If you want to know about the material, I can talk on it. But if you're, like, asking about, like, prices and stuff, you got to go to the website, rocktape.com. So Perfect. go to the ed- education website, get all that stuff. I'm just terrible at it. Uh, again, poor business, poor businessman uh, trying to be a better clinician. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was great. Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care.